we know that there are hundreds of disorders potentially where if you understand this person has a susceptibility to them, there are hundreds of them which we know we can actually target, we can actually treat if you get in there early before symptoms start. So these sorts of things are already happening. And I think that the way genomics is going with more and more people adopting it around the world, with technologies getting better and faster and cheaper, it's only going to become more and more important. Hi, everyone. What if you, your child, your parent, or someone else you loved had a disease that could be prevented or possibly even cured by understanding your or their personal genetic makeup? I'm talking about anything from a rare disorder to epilepsy to cancer. Wow, like how wonderful would that be? Well, the good news is that's not far-fetched anymore. In fact, progress like this is being made almost every day as researchers, scientists, and clinicians study the makeup of our bodies, the human genome. And one of those genome scientists is Dr. Charles Stewart, and he's my guest expert on this episode, episode number eight of Healthcare on the Horizon. On this episode, Dr. Stewart will share his knowledge and experience about such things as when did the effort to map the human genome begin? And where are we now with that? Why the effort to understand the human genome and benefit from that is a global exercise? What are some specific diseases which genomic research is having a positive impact on? And what impact our understanding of the human genome could potentially have on us individually over the next decade and beyond? Dr. Charles Stewart is an internationally renowned patient advocate and genome scientist who has spent nearly 29 years working with the human genome and rare diseases. He spent 22 years at the Wellcome Sanger Institute, which is where he did his PhD and has co-authored numerous publications. Charles has taught extensively about the human genome at Cambridge University in the United Kingdom and internationally with the Wellcome Trust. He's also worked with Congenica, and currently is the Head of Patient and Participant Engagement at Genomics England. Dr. Stewart is also the father of two children with severe neurological disorders who have been through numerous UK-based genomic studies, including Genomics England's 100,000 Genomes Project. He's also a patron and trustee for Hope for Epilepsy London. Welcome to Healthcare on the Horizon. I'm your host, Jeff Ostroff. This podcast is intended for the general public and healthcare professionals. Healthcare on the Horizon is about where things stand now with the prevention, diagnosis, and treatment of specific diseases and how things might change with those in the future. Our goal is to help you learn more about these diseases and to give you a clearer picture of the work being done right now to improve or eradicate their adverse impact. Like its sister podcast, Looking Forward, Opportunities for Job, Career, Business, and Investment Seekers, Healthcare on the Horizon will look a bit into the future, in this case, to provide hopeful news about the various diseases we shine a light on. We hope you'll find the information here useful in an educational sense, but also, perhaps in a more personal way, should you, a family member, or a friend, have one of the medical conditions we cover. Please note, the information shared on this podcast 
is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended as a substitute for the advice provided by your physician or any other healthcare professional. Well, hi, Charlie. Welcome to Healthcare on the Horizon. Hi, Jeff. Thank you very much for inviting me. Well, it's great to have you on. You're quite an expert in your field, and it's always great, too, when I get to speak with experts who are on the other side of the pond, as we like to say. Charlie, I think a great way to get us started would be to have you tell us just a little bit about your educational background, about the company that you've joined up with fairly recently, Genomics England, and about your work there. Sure. So I've always had, even at school, I had an interest in DNA and genetics. And I started working on the human genome in 1994 at the the Wellcome Genome Campus near Cambridge. And I spent most of my, well, all of my career really, working on the human genome. So in 1994, I started and I saw it all the way through to when the the human genome was so-called finished, when the genome we think was pretty much complete. And that was at the beginning of the 2000s. And of course, after that time, once we've got the genome finished, we really needed to think more about the genes that are contained in the human genome, think more about their function, think more about how the human genome might be of benefit to people who want to design drugs, how it might be used in healthcare. And those sorts of areas are now really being used a lot more as we hoped they would have been all those years back. So I say I worked in academia for 22 years and it wasn't until my children were born with, as it turned out, severe neurological disorders. In my mind, I moved from being really interested in the human genome as a really amazing project, a bit like going to the moon. Was this amazing project? How did we manage to do it? What is the promise of the human genome in general? to thinking more about, well, can I think about the human genome as a way of explaining my children's challenges? Sure. I had, through the work I'm doing in academia, made a lot of connections with researchers and collaborators in the clinical world who were interested to work with me and try and investigate bits of the genome that are involved with severe neurological disorders, such as epilepsy. And sort of overnight, I went from being an academic with a general interest to someone, a dad, who had a specific interest in understanding devastating disorders, really, that was certainly what my children had. So I became an advocate overnight, and I had this sort of curious combination of skills which I've been building since they were first diagnosed with their their problems, And, and that is as a genome scientist, but also as the voice of a dad, but also as an advocate for anybody else who is going through similar challenges. And it was that that led me to work for a company called Congenica. And from there, after six amazing years, I found the opportunity to join company Genomics England. I've had a, a wonderful relationship with Genomics England because Genomics England are the company who've been involved in trying to understand my family's presumed genetic disorders. And they began looking at my daughter's genome in around 2016. And I've been a part of the of Genomics England since then. And in fact, I've actually been on the participant panel, which is the group of people who are involved in the genomics study who have a real, really important central voice to the work that Genomics England is doing. 
just to explain a little bit about Genomics England, is a company that was set up to essentially run the 100,000 Genomes Project. And people who work in genomics will very likely have heard of the 100,000 Genomes Project. It's an initiative to sequence people's genomes who have either presumed rare diseases or cancers. And it was set up by the ex-Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. You may remember him, someone called David Cameron. And David Cameron, he had a son with something called Otahara syndrome, which is a type of epilepsy that comes on at or around birth. It's a very severe type of epilepsy. I mean, no epilepsy is nice. But I think epilepsy in very young people is particularly difficult because the brain is still developing, can do a lot of damage. And if you can't stop the seizures, then very bad things will happen. And in fact, some mothers after they've given birth, when they've been asked about their child, they will say that what they thought was the fetus moving was actually the child having seizures in the womb. And sadly, Ivan Cameron, who that's David Cameron's son, he died at the age of six and he also had cerebral palsy. And of course, uh, cerebral palsy and epilepsy are two of the symptoms that my children have had. So I often think about the struggles that little boy had, and he's very much an inspiration to both the work I do and day-to-day lives with my children. Well, thanks for explaining that, Charlie. It certainly makes a lot of sense why you would have pivoted in your career in this direction. I also wanted to say I had a guest on Healthcare on the Horizon, and her story is somewhat similar to yours. I'm speaking of Monica Weldon, and you've met her. Her son has since got one, and she got very much involved with that and spearheads a foundation about that. I think it's great what you're doing, not only in research, but as an advocate for those who have these kinds of rare and very difficult disorders and even other conditions that may not be so rare which is a perfect segue, I'd like you to give us an overview of when genomic research truly began, you touched on that, and how is it being used in the effort to help prevent, diagnose, or treat different diseases, Charlie? If we're talking about the idea of breeding certain traits, we go about thousands of years. Yes. I mean, the ancient Greeks, they talked about things that were inherited. And then there's sort of Gregor Mendel, the monk back in the 19th century, who was looking at his peas, different colours. But I suppose if we want to think about sort of modern day, we go back to sort of the 1950s when Watson and Crick discovered the structure of DNA Now, I must say this, based upon the amazing work that Rosalind Franklin did with X-ray crystallography, she is sometimes overlooked work that she did in sort of elucidating the structure of DNA. But anyway, sort of the 50s was when we sort of begin to think about the molecule DNA. And then I suppose sort of gradually from then on, people like Fred Sanger, and Fred Sanger, obviously, I mentioned the Sanger Institute. Uh, Fred Sanger was the person it was named after. And Fred Sanger was a Cambridge scientist who got two Nobel Prizes, which is, I mean, one is amazing, but two is just extraordinary. And one of them was for elucidating the amino acid structure of insulin, just sort of understanding how it was made up. And the second one, which is probably most famous for, is developing a technique that allowed you to read the DNA bases or what we call Sanger sequencing and being able to sort of read the DNA structure. Well, you you don't really need me to tell you. You can imagine the possibilities there. 
mm. know, from going from a sort of a you know, complex structure to actually beginning to understand each individual component that makes it up. And it was that work that allowed places such as the Sanger Centre, as it was called then, the Cambridge, to set up and begin to think about what's involved, what do we need to do to sequence a human genome. And back when I started, back in 1994, you know, we were talking about sequencing the human genome in around 50 years, which I suppose is the easy way of saying, well, we're never really going to get it done, are we? But 50 years sounds a reachable target. It was a really great idea. I mean, it was an amazing idea, but it was going to cost so much money and it was going to involve so much new technology and compute power that I think at the time it was, well, how can we really justify spending all this money on sequencing the human genome when there are other things, important things in life that can be done. And I think it was really what what came down to it was the idea of somebody trying to sort of own the human genome, privatizing it. And there was an initiative to do just that. There was a group who wanted to sequence the human genome and then people to pay to access it. And that was frightening for a lot of people. Ethically speaking, who should own the human genome? That's Clearly, most people would probably say it's humanity who owns it. No one owns it, but everyone owns it. And because of that sort of endeavour, there was a huge push by the public and people who thought that this shouldn't happen. So the race started to make a human genome that was publicly available. And because of that, you talk about times of war, most technology happens, real leaps in technology occur during war. Okay, that sounds very dramatic for what was essentially, you know, a real sort of very competitive, but ultimately a good outcome. That sort of battle between private and public meant the technology leapt forward many, many years, huge amounts put into it. Then by 2001, we essentially had a human genome. Okay, it was in pieces, it went in some pieces, but majority of it was there. Now, of course, it's very easy to get over-enthusiastic about things, as you can imagine. And I think a lot of scientists then had been saying to the pharma industry, you wait, genomics will have all your answers. And of course, we didn't have all the answers at all. We'd made these sort of promises to, to people that, you know, would have all the answers for making drugs and all that sort of stuff. It didn't happen. But thankfully, I think now, since that sort of period of time, many other technologies have come forward, grown, developed. That means that you now do see some really fascinating partnerships between the pharma, biotech and genomics. It's interesting. At this point, they would include Genomics England and you and, and other organizations that are partnering. Are they targeting specific diseases or illnesses or is it everything under the sun is being looked at? That is a good question. If you try to think objectively about what could genomics do, what can it promise? Well, objectively speaking, if you can look at someone's genome and think, well, they are likely to get a specific disorder, but we know we have a drug therapy for that. Well, let's give them that now as they're just developing their symptoms. The ultimate cost savings for the healthcare system would potentially be huge. You might have to sort a reasonable amount of money up front. But if you compare it to the lifetime of a person, then savings would be huge. So the opportunities are sort of endless. They, you know, they, they are. So it's it's a matter of sort of managing expectations to a certain degree. But there are certainly some disorders which might perhaps be more amenable to being targeted for drug therapy. And epilepsy might be an example of one which offers itself as a druggable target. 
I mean, there are very many reasons why specific disorders are targeted for research. And I think what we mentioned, perhaps even coming back to the patient advocacy side of things, is that there are so many different disorders that it's not practical for clinicians and researchers to look at them all themselves. There are just so many of them. And I think that's the job is beginning to come down to the actual patients themselves, so the patient advocates. And we see that now. We do see, as you were talking about Monica Weldon earlier, we are seeing patients stepping up and becoming world-leading authorities in their own disorders. Pediatric neurologists may well have no what hundreds and hundreds of different disorders. There's no way they can know them all in detail. And that's where the patient is beginning to prove their worth. And there are great examples of patients who come from absolutely have no idea about genomics or genetics or DNA before their family is affected by something. And then, you know, nothing inspires you to learn than having a severe illness. And this is what happens. You know, people are inspired to investigate their own disorders. They set up support groups, they set up a website, and they act as sort of like a, a honeypot. They attract, they allow other people around the world to find out more about a disorder they might have. And it you know, helps them to make friends with people who, who might have the same disorder. And it also allows clinicians to come and, and talk to a specific group of people. Perhaps they might be working on a disorder themselves. You know, it's all very well reading about stuff in papers and books, but you don't really get to understand it unless you talk to people who are living with that disorder. So let me just jump in and ask you, are you saying that part of what is determining which diseases might be targeted by the genomic researchers is based on the amount of advocacy that is done out there in the world by people who either have these conditions or more likely those who are their family members or friends. Absolutely. Yes. And I'd say specifically in rare diseases. So if you read the literature, there's some people will say there are at least 10,000 rare diseases that we know of at the moment. Yeah. And I would say once you're, you're using genomics to look at individual people, we may all have a rare disease in the sense that we're all slightly different. Two people who have the same gene defect might have just slight variants in it, which means they might be less susceptible to a certain drug than the other person, even though the gene is the same one that's affected. Yeah. So yeah, I think in rare diseases, certainly a lot of the advocacy work will push certain genes to the top of the list. Yeah, things like cancer, breast cancer, for example, or lung cancer, which affects a huge amount of people, there will be obvious need to look at those you can see a clear reason why. But when you're looking at a disorder that affects maybe 50 people or five people worldwide, it's difficult for pharma to justify spending money on that. It's understandable to a certain degree, isn't it? Development has to happen and, and money has to be recouped. But certainly the advocates in rare diseases, they are the ones who, a lot of them are leading this. They develop patient registries that talk about all the different symptoms they might have, your age of onset, all that sort of stuff. They're developing really powerful data sets, which suddenly become really, really interesting to clinicians and researchers. Charlie, is this genomic research that we're talking about, regardless of whether it's a rare disease or a major disease, is it happening pretty evenly around the world right now? You're over there in Europe. Is it happening similarly in other continents or countries? That's a really interesting question. Now, of course, there are what you might imagine sort of big players here you know, in the UK, the 100,000 Genos Project and 
UK Biobank, and of course, United States, so they have a, a big involvement, China as well. But yeah, other countries are beginning to really think about genomics as not just as a way of sequencing the genomes of people who are already ill, but perhaps doing sequencing on genome of a whole population to begin to understand perhaps a specific cohort or ethnic group might have one disorder that's more prevalent than perhaps another. And of course, with rare diseases that affect five, 10 people, you're not just going to find them in one country. And the more people you sequence, the more chance you have of finding other people who have the same disorder that gives you the power in numbers to begin to understand that disorder. And of course, the more you do it globally, the more chance you have of finding those other people. And I think what is another really important consideration, and I'm not sure how common it is, a lot of the genomics work that has taken place traditionally has been from people of European ancestry. And I think a lot more work is being done, there's any room for more, is to look at different populations, populations from around the world, because we're all different. The way we react to drugs is very different. You know, you might react to paracetamol or, I don't know, ibuprofen. I don't know what, you're, you're, what it's called in the United States, but sort of common drugs. We all react slightly differently. And that's because of underlying genomics. We might metabolize drugs better than the person who's next door to us. The idea of having more global genome studies around the world helps everybody because we all begin to learn a bit more about each other. We begin to learn how certain things affect certain people. I really hope you're enjoying this episode so far. If you are, can you please do me a small favor? Let some of your family members, friends, or others in your network know about it and about healthcare on the horizon. If you happen to like this podcast, my interviewing approach, or perhaps even my voice, please consider checking out some of the many services my business provides. These include podcast hosting, creation and consulting, voiceovers, professional interviewing, production of audio or video promotional profiles to help you sell your business, promote your services, increase your customers, or raise funding, event hosting and meeting facilitation, and services to help you market to the large and growing seniors population. That's something I've actually written a book about. To learn more about all of this and my other podcast, Looking Forward, Opportunities for Job, Career, Business, and Investment Seekers, please visit www.jeff-ostroff.com. You can also email me at jeff at jeff-ostroff.com. Now let's get back to this episode of Healthcare on the Horizon. Charlie, is that something that you've seen start to evolve, that there is beginning to be more of a global unity involving more people? I think scientists are naturally collaborative. I found that, I mean, there, there's a, a consortium that I have done a bit of work with in the past the uh, International Rare Diseases Research Consortium, or ERDUC. And that has members from all across the globe, and they are very much looking to offer genomics as an opportunity for everyone anywhere. Charlie, I know that I and the listeners would be very interested in hearing about some recent examples of where genomic research is making some progress in either preventing diagnosing or treating specific diseases. 
Can you give us a few examples of where you're seeing progress that's being made? It may not be giving us a cure yet, may not be preventing it yet, but you're actually seeing some real progress being made with those diseases. Yeah, sure. So in my experience, of my personal experience, epilepsy is a very interesting subject. Now, if you go back a few decades, epilepsy was believed to be just unlucky. People had epilepsy. You, know, you were born with it. That was it. But work in genomics began to see that there actually genes were responsible for some epilepsies. And we're beginning to see that the, the more work we do in epilepsy, the more we realize that epilepsy actually has a significant underlying genetic cause. And often people with an epilepsy might be diagnosed with a specific syndrome, which is a clinical way of describing people who might have specific type of seizure that comes on at a certain time and might be, I don't know, intractable to drugs. And while it's nice to have a tag, it's not particularly helpful as you try to live with it. And epilepsies, we're beginning to uncover specific genes that cause specific disorders. Some of the early onset epilepsies I mentioned, you know, they're particularly nasty, but there are examples of where if you can find out the genetic cause, even the very specific epilepsy, if you administer vitamin B or a specific type of vitamin B, that can stop the seizures. And the person who has that can essentially go on to lead pretty normal life. Whereas we know people who have this genetic disorder, who are in their 40s and 50s, have a, have a very challenging time. So I think what we're really seeing is the ability to bring some sort of granularity to these so-called syndromes. We're lumping everyone into one big sack. We're able to now pull them out and put them into a lot smaller little bags. And this really helps because an epilepsy that might look the same to someone may have very, very different underlying causes. And as a result, will respond very, very differently to potentially the same drug. And I'd also mention that how if you perhaps develop a, a type of cancer, how genome sequencing might uncover the cause of that. I can use the example of my mother. She had breast cancer around six years ago and she had her tumour sequenced through Cancer Research UK and they identified the gene that was causing her cancer. And that meant that they were able to give her a specific clinical pathway treatment for her cancer that if you didn't know what was causing it, you can spend many, many months giving people the wrong drugs. And of course, months is you don't tend to have a lot of them in some cancers. Right. Quick follow-up to that, Charlie. You mentioned cerebral palsy. There's so many conditions out there. Parkinson's. Any progress right now that you see in any of those fronts? I mean, there's many other diseases, but... Yeah, yeah. What, what I didn't say about epilepsy is that scientists now believe that anyone who develops epilepsy will have some sort of genetic cause. So you might have two people who have exact same car accident, both have a head trauma, but only one will develop epilepsy. Why is that? Well, we think the genome has something to do with it. And in some respects, I'm talking about cerebral palsy specifically because that's what my children have. But, you know, cerebral palsy is the biggest cause of childhood disabilities around the world. It affects a huge number of people. And it's one of those disorders where you're diagnosed with it and it's like, well, good luck, goodbye. Here you go. You've got cerebral palsy. We can only manage symptoms. But research is showing that we think that at least 30% of people with cerebral palsy have a genetic cause for it. 30% of millions of people around the world, if you think 30% of them may have a genetic cause, 
Well, that means going forward, it's possible to produce drugs against those sorts of targets in genetic cerebral palsy. And some people say, well, actually, we think it's probably closer to 50. So genomics is beginning to unpack a lot of these disorders, which may have just been sort of left on the side, and give us much insight into how we can treat and manage these disorders. And ultimately, of course, you can then develop therapies. So it's going to be helpful if you can begin to distinguish between those types of cerebral palsy that are genetic compared to those which are caused by premature birth. Because instead of trying to look at all of them in one go, you can sort of package them up and say, right, well, you look at the genetic cerebral palsies, as we understand them, and we'll look at preterm birth. So you then you can focus on it more, can't you? You can spend yeah. more sort of focused time on looking at those individual groups. And for me, that's it. It's sort of bite-sized chunks. You can begin to whittle down disorders into more meaningful, understandable sort of topics. Yes, it reminds me of a term, Charlie, that I used to hear in my first career. I don't know if they're still using it now, was drilling down. So you're drilling down here to try to narrow the focus of who your population yeah. is or what you're studying. Yeah. Charlie, you have as good a vantage point about this as anybody I know. As we look into the future, and we'll just say this decade, what might we expect we'll see in the way of progress towards preventing, diagnosing, or treating the diseases you've mentioned, the syndromes you've mentioned, or others because of the genomic research that Genomics England, you and others are doing and through these partnerships potentially with the pharmaceutical companies? Well, I think one of the big things is something that we call pharmacogenomics. And I kind of alluded to that earlier. And that's how we respond to drugs. And of course, you know, all our genomes are slightly different. We all respond to drugs slightly differently. We were beginning to, to get quite deep into this in various groups around the world. I'm beginning to understand that certain people are better drug responders than others. And if you were to go to hospital and you had your card of, well, I'm allergic to this because my genotype is this, but I respond really well to this because my genes do this, then objectively speaking, why would you want to waste lots of medicines on people where you know they're not going to respond? Why would you want to give someone a, a drug where they could potentially could be lethal? So these are really important things, all sorts of considerations. And then also personalised medicine is more than just the drugs you might want to respond to. You know, personalised medicine, you might begin to think about if you've got a rare disease, you might be able to design a drug specifically based upon your genome. And uh, now there are already groups working on therapies, something called antisense oligonucleotide therapy, bit of a mouthful, but it's a technique that's being used and it might offer the possibility that in the future of sort of very high throughput opportunities for people. So instead of you having to hope that someone wants to investigate your rare disease, there might be this sort of pathway where your genome is sequenced, you identify what the problem is, and then your genome is then put into a, a fast track sort of technology that might develop you a personalized drug. I don't know if that's 10 years, but it'd be nice to think that it's on the horizon. And if we take a look at a big initiative that the UK announced recently that Genomics England is seeing, newborn sequencing, where we have this thing called the heel prick test, which you take a bit of blood from the baby and you can test for a handful of disorders. And now what we're doing is we're thinking, well, we know that there are hundreds of disorders potentially where 
if you understand this person has a susceptibility to them, there are hundreds of them which we know we can actually target, we can actually treat if you get in there early before symptoms start. So these sorts of things are already happening. And I think that the way genomics is going with more and more people adopting it around the world, with technologies getting better and faster and cheaper, some sequencing machines, they're smaller than potentially the size of a laptop. It's beginning to be adopted, I would say, more and more around the world, and it's only going to become more and more important. It's exciting, Shirley. One quick follow-up to that. It sounds like it's very important, or it's feasible, for individuals to have their genes sequenced. How pervasive do you see that becoming? You mentioned babies. Is this going to be something that's going to become more common? Probably not in my lifetime, but for other people that it will be not that expensive to get their genes sequenced and they'll have that record. I think ultimately that would be wonderful if you know what your genome is, if you know what's in there, then it would mean that you uh, potentially you're able to get the right treatment for your disorder rather than just throwing darts in the dark, as I think sometimes it's called. And why wouldn't you want to, if, if there was a disorder, I suppose, that was treatable, but before the symptoms started, you would want to know, wouldn't you, I think? You might be able to prevent it, right? Yeah, absolutely. Of course, there are huge ethical challenges. It's not a simple subject. It's certainly nowhere as simple as I've suggested. As you drill down into it, it becomes very, very challenging, the sorts of complexities that are thrown up. But yeah, think big. Absolutely, think big. Charlie, this has been great. You've shed a lot of light on a subject that's fascinating to me. And I know millions of other people are fascinated by this and what we're learning about the human genome and talking about these advances that are being made is very exciting. How can our listeners find out more about you and what you're doing, Genomics England, Genomics Research in general, and anything else that you'd like to share with them? Well, you can find me on LinkedIn. I don't really use any other social media. You can find Genomics England. They've got a huge website with all sorts of info. Yeah. And if somebody just wants to find out more about what's happening with these genome projects, would they find it through Genomics England? Each country will have their own website, I'm sure, for whichever national study they have. Charlie, it's been wonderful having you on. Thank you so much for the work that you're doing not only in research, but in terms of supporting patients, advocating for patients. You, of course, have a very strong personal interest in this yourself and your family, and I certainly wish your children well, and I hope they can benefit from some of the work that you're doing, either directly or indirectly. Thank you so much for being our guest on Healthcare on the Horizon. Thank you for having me, Jeff. Great pleasure. Thank you. My pleasure, too. Thanks for listening to this episode of Healthcare on the Horizon. I hope you've enjoyed it and will benefit from it. And if you did like it, please share this episode with anyone you know who you think might also find it of value. And if you have any comments or questions about Healthcare on the Horizon or any suggestions for future topics or guest experts, you can reach me at the website www.jeff-ostroff.com or through my email address, jeff at jeff-ostroff.com. Thanks.